Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure, pleasure to be here. Um, I think I love, one, one of the many things that I love about church is singing beforehand. I feel like it just puts your heart in such a great um, posture, uh, myself included. And, I, and as I was listening to the songs, I just heard this story of being broken and redeemed, broken and redeemed, broken and redeemed. And um, that's definitely the author who wrote my story. Um, very much, uh, I come from a, a different background. Um, obviously, I, was a, I grew up in uh, Florida, but I was a professional surfer um, at first, and then I uh, ended my career, and then now I'm at Oxford University uh, studying a master's in Christian ethics, and I'm also doing an apologetic program through the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. Um, I did my undergraduate at Columbia University in New York City, and I'm here just essentially to share my story. Um, I show you why I am here today talking to you guys, why I think Alpha is important, um, why and how my life has changed because of something like Alpha. Um, and I just encourage you guys at the end to sign up for this course, um, and a part because if my story resonates with you, if you find something compelling about it, um, these courses work because people sign up for them, and the people are different, and they sit alongside each other, and they talk to each other. And they talk through these questions. Um, and that is a large part of my testimony and why I'm here today. Because people sat in my life and they listened to my difficult questions. Um, and they offered answers. And they offered answers that I didn't find were, were very compelling at times. And that's okay. They sat next to me when I went through suffering. When I experienced loss. Um, and all of that spoke to a king um, who was willing to sacrifice himself. Um, the same person that we've sung about for the last three or four songs. Um, so the search for our truth and knowledge, and it's something that I'm really coming to enjoy now, um, especially in academia, is that we're always searching for truth and knowledge. No matter if you're an atheist, if you're agnostic, all of us are. Um, and that's part of the beauties of being human. Um, if you're a Christian, um, I grew up in a Christian household, um, kind of. I went to church once or twice a year, um, and I inherited a lot of answers that I never questioned. Um, and there will come a time in your life when those answers will begin to tear at the seams. And I think each person in that video spoke about that, when they had achieved something, and all of a sudden these answers, whether it was from what society told them they would find happiness in, um, it became to come, come apart. Um, so that's why a course like this is important. Um, and even if you're a seasoned Christian, God is good, but he is not safe, and he does not want you to be in a safe place. He's always calling us out of the harbor. So even if you've been a Christian for a very long time, I encourage you to sign up for this course. Um, there'll be non-Christians there, and there'll be people that are just coming to the faith. And your experiences are what they will learn from just as much as the material that's in these videos. So, as I said before, I was, uh, grew up in Florida, the Sunshine State, where it's sunny every single day. Um, it's an amazing, amazing uh, place. <laughs> place that I miss more and more being at Oxford. Um, and I grew up in a family of four. So mom, my dad, and older brother. And my brother Tommy and I, we love sports. How many of you guys love sports? All right. So we love sports. Uh, one thing we got into really early was karate. 
So we were really young, and uh, my parents bought us a bunch of sparring gear, and we would spar each other. And we would, you, would, you know, we had face and uh, our, our knuckles and shins were covered, and we would just essentially beat each other up. Um, <laughs> and my parents always said, well, it's fine as long as we can hear the pads hitting. But if we stop hearing the pads hitting, that means someone's landed a good punch and the gloves are off. And so they would immediately run downstairs. So we love surf, we love karate, and we also got into surfing. Um, and as I'm sure you guys have, when you stand in front of the ocean, there's just something majestic about it. It's just unconquerable. There's creatures that come out of it. Like in Florida, we have these sea turtles. They come out of the ocean, and they lay eggs, and they go back in the ocean. And then they, wherever the eggs hatch, they come, those, those turtles, if they survive to maturity, they come back within like a thousand foot radius of where they went in the water. I mean, it's just incredible. So I fell in love with the ocean at a really young age. And obviously, when you're next to the ocean and in the Atlantic, um, there's waves. And so we had to figure out how to surf. Um, so my parents bought us surfboards, and we taught each other through trial and error. And my brother loved surfing big waves. I was terrified. He was three years older than me, so he was always faster, stronger, all of that. Um, and, and he dragged me into the ocean all the time to take me surfing. Um, and I began to compete at a really young age, at 14 years old. Um, and I decided to quit other sports because I love surfing so much. Um, so I, I made the national team a couple years later, and I turned pro after high school. After I graduated, my parents wanted me to go to college. And I was like, no, I have other plans, mom and dad. Um, I love you. My mom was a high school teacher, so education was really important. Um, but I decided to go to California. I wanted to give it a shot. You know, I'd worked so hard, um, and I wanted to see if I could make it. And so I moved out to California, and I got a, good, a couple of good results in some contests. And I came to sign my first contract as, as a professional athlete where you get paid to surf, which is incredible. I mean, it's like, it's, it's an incredible job. Um, and so I was, I waited, I waited, actually, funny story, I waited for three days outside the CEO's office to sign my contract. I waited three days because he didn't want to sign me. And I, but I got a meeting with this guy. And I sat there the first day he didn't see me, the second day he didn't see me, and the third day, the final day, his secretary came out and said, he'll see you now. And I had 30 minutes to give him my pitch. Gave him my pitch, he made a phone call, and an hour later I walked out with a contract. And my van was packed, I was gonna go home and say I gave it a shot, it didn't work, and it worked. Um, so I signed my contract and I turned professional. This was a huge moment in my life. Um, and for surfing, you can either compete in contests or you can just travel and with photographers and go to exotic places and you're kind of pushing the boundaries of the sport. Um, and so I, I enjoy that part. I enjoy the traveling part where you could travel with photographers. And, and one of the first places I went was Indonesia. And we went off these uh, this, this islands off of Indonesia. And I was 20 years old. Um, and we chartered a boat. We spent three weeks out there. And one of the down days, I paddled up to this island, and it was an island no bigger than this church. It was tiny. I didn't think anyone was on this island. And so I'm paddling up kind of naive, you know, I'm just going to paddle up to it and just kind of walk around it. And I'm paddling, and all of a sudden I look, and someone comes out of the jungle area. And I'm like, this is scary. I mean, I didn't expect anyone to come out of there. And this man is dressed in a loincloth and a spear, and I'm not sure if he's going to throw this thing at me or not, you know, and I'm paddling slowly, slowly, and we have this interaction where he, like, he notices me, and then he turns, and he kind of does his thing. 
And so obviously he's interacted with surfers before. Um, he's not threatened by me in any means. I'm, I feel more threatened by him. But it was, it was just this cool experience where like, he came up to me and I showed him my surfboard and he touched it. Um, I looked at his spirit. He made these goggles. I was just fascinated. We didn't speak one word. We, we smiled at each other and we kind of went our way. Um, and so those are the stories that I, and experiences I began to have at a really young age. Um, and then after that, I went to Hawaii, where you would spend about three months on the North Shore, and we would surf waves that are, you know, 10 meters high, and it's terrifying. And you're scared, but it's your job. <laughs> you have to do it. You have to go, and you have to push yourself over these waves. Um, and I'm in Hawaii, and I'm surfing places. If any of you guys are familiar, there's waves like Pipeline, there's Waimea, there's Sunset. These are iconic waves that are up to the ceiling at some points. Um, and I'm there, and I'm there to compete, and it's a huge moment in my life. Um, and I'm with these really, I'm kind of rubbing shoulders with the guys that I've looked up to all the time, and now I have to compete against them, which is awkward, right? You're like, can I beat this person? Do I beat them, you know? Like, it's like, if they beat me, so. Um, so yeah, and it was great. And I'm there in Hawaii, and preparing for a contest the next day. And I get a phone call, my friend gets a phone call in the middle of the night, and he says, Will, your dad's on the phone. I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's, you know, my dad knows the time difference is about six hours, so that's weird. Like, why would my dad call me? And the first question is, he says, are you alone? I said, no, I'm not alone. And I knew, like, if you know your parents' voice, you know when something's wrong. You know when something's happened, and they're just buying time before they tell you. And he said, Tommy died. He died in his sleep. And we had no idea why. I never got to say goodbye. And this was my brother who got me into surfing. This is my best friend. And I get to hop on a flight home. And we begin the process, if any of you guys have been through it, of just this sort of weird switch where you are waking up to a nightmare. And you hope it's not true. You hope that this didn't happen. And when you sleep, you like buy six, seven hours of it not being true. Um, but later, the, the autopsy revealed that he died of an aortic aneurysm. An aneurysm is essentially a balloon um, in your aorta, which is the main artery that carries blood around your body. Um, and it ruptured, and he was dead in three seconds. Um, and this broke me. This absolutely crushed me. Um, this is a question, um, why does God allow suffering? Right? Why does God allow suffering? These are the questions that you guys are going to be coming across um, in this course. These are questions you don't necessarily think about until you're in the midst of suffering and you're crying out when it's happening. Um, and these are questions that you need people who have been through suffering to be alongside you in them. Um, so... I never asked this question, and I was confronted with it, and I had no relationship with God. So asking how could God allow suffering was a lot like asking a complete stranger a question. There was no relationship there. Um, and if I took God out of the picture, if God doesn't exist, then I can say that this is hurtful. But I have a bigger problem, because there's nothing, there's nothing there that justifies this being morally wrong. This is just a subjective experience. If the universe is all there is, death and cruelty and violence is just the way it is. 
We can't say it ought to be different. This forced me, this forced me to consider Christianity and religion. The idea that God, the only way to intellectually justify death being wrong, morally wrong, is you're, you have to engage the idea of God, something outside of this created universe. And either I got over my moral outrage, or I consider there is a God. And what struck me about Christianity, it has the audacity to claim that God has suffered. That God has suffered. That Jesus experienced bereavement, loneliness, poverty, and torture. That John eleven thirty five 35 says Jesus wept at the foot of his grave. That God wept. When God was on earth, he wept at his foot of his friend's grave. Why? Why? This is the shortest sentence in the Bible. But it just brings up questions. Why would God, why would he cry? And the Psalms gives me permission to be mad. It doesn't say that suffering is pointless. It says, no, where are you, God, in this? Why are you silent? Why do you allow this? These are in the Psalms. These are written in your Bible, if you have one. And the, uh, the Bible does not offer a philosophical speculation about this, this, this problem. And if you deny God, you have this problem as well. But the, but the Bible does not give you a distant creator. It gives you a God who is intimately bound to human history. That Jesus experienced suffering. And this was enough. This was enough for me to begin to consider Christianity. I wasn't a Christian yet, but I was considering Christianity. And I realized that the question of why does God allow suffering is a question that is rooted in philosophical theism which is from the Enlightenment. And when you pose this question, it, you automatically assume that the most powerful attribute of God is his power. Either he's all-powerful, or he's all-good. He can't be both, because suffering exists. And yet, the king that we sung about for the first four songs, and what we're going to talk about today, is a God who uses his power and empties himself of his power. For us, on the cross, it's complex. And that complexity is what compelled me to dig further. It wasn't a straight answer. And that matched my experience in the world, in the universe. There's complex, there's complex answers. And there's a complex God. And so I became, I took my first step to become a Christian. I said, all right, I'll, I'll consider this. And like many parts of people's stories in this room, I met a girl. And she was a Christian. And I, I ended up moving to New York City. And I began to, to, to attend a church on a regular basis. And I began to attend a course like Alpha. And this is a group that is geared towards skeptics and new Christians with where you engage a lot of misconceptions about Christianity. And this is when I began to look at the evidence for Scripture. And I began to look at the academic standard of integrity for any ancient writing 
is based on two things, the number of documented manuscripts and the accuracy, the documents compared to one another and their accuracy. The Old Testament, through the Dead Sea Scrolls, has 40,000 inscribed fragments, dated at 3rd, 4th century BC. There's the complete copy of Isaiah, the verse that was read up here today, that is 95% accurate to the standard Hebrew Bible. 95% accurate. And the New Testament, there's more evidence that supports the authenticity and trustworthy of the New Testament than any ancient manuscript we have. Hands down. Hands down. You look at like an ancient manuscript like Plato was written in the 4th century. There's less than 10 existing copies. The earliest copy is dated at 900 AD. There's over 1,000 years between the original and the earliest copy. In contrast... There's over 24,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament. The earliest copies of these manuscripts are separated by only 25 to 50 years. This leads people like the director and principal librarian of the British Museum, uh, Sir Frederick Kenyon, state, to state that no other ancient book has anything like such early and plentiful testimony to its text. And no unbiblical scholar would deny that the text has come down to us is substantially sound. There's no other ancient manuscripts that has this type of evidence on its side. And you can look that up. That the Apostle Paul wrote letters 15 to 20 years after the resurrection. That the Gospels were written 40, 60 years max after the death of Jesus. And what is fascinating, what I find fascinating about these accounts is the eyewitness. They're eyewitness accounts. They say things that you would put in an eyewitness statement. Like in 1 Corinthians, um, Paul claims that there's 500 people that saw Christ. In the book of Mark, it claims that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Essentially, he's saying that if you want to know the truth, ask Alexander and Rufus. And these are public documents that are read aloud within the lifetime of the people there. So they could, if you had someone, or if I was saying something false about a story, someone could stand up and be like, no, that's not true. That's not true. And so each of these things pushed me further to consider. And for me, being a natural skeptic at heart, I began to look at non-biblical sources, Right? Let's look outside the Bible to see what people say about the Bible. Let's go outside of it and see. And you have imperial letters dated at 112 AD where the emperor of Rome is discussing how do we properly persecute Christians with the governor of Athena. He's saying, how do we do this right? Are, we, is it, are they guilty just by being Christian? Can they denounce their faith? What do we do? And the, what this speaks to is that Christianity is spreading. It's spreading, and it's spreading to all classes. Um, other evidence that I find really very compelling is why invent women as the first eyewitnesses to seeing Jesus when their testimony was not admissible in court during this, during this time? If you're going to create a story, you wouldn't make the first people who see Jesus you would choose someone who their, their testimony is allowed in court. 
if you're going to make it up, why would, you, why would you make it so the person whose testimony is not allowed in court see him first? All of this could have been easily put aside if the critics just presented the body. That's all they had to do. Just present the body and it's done. It was this compelling evidence for me to begin to consider becoming a Christian. And it was critical for me to see this evidence. And while I was still serving professionally at the time, I was still living in New York City. And I would be a part of this group, and I would travel, and I would come back. And I would travel and come back. And I'm sure being in a university town, you guys have that same turnover. But when I would come back to the group, I would sit in on it. And that being able to field questions with one another, be able to think through these questions, um, that's what allowed me to eventually make a decision to become a Christian. I took a step of faith. I took a step of faith and became a Christian. And that's when my life got really hard. That's when my life got really difficult. Um, I was, about three years later, I was diagnosed with an aneurysm myself. So I was diagnosed through my girlfriend at the time. She was in public health. I went online, was praying, uh, went online. I really felt like God led me to, to really look up what possibly killed my brother. Went online, did a search, came across a website, had six or seven symptoms. I was like, I should probably get checked. I would have never done that. I would have never gotten checked on my own. In <laughs> fact, my girlfriend was in public health. She was like, you need to get checked. So I went to go get checked. Um, and sure enough, I was diagnosed. And it was completely unexpected. My life changed in a second. In a second. My mom and dad were checked. My mom was diagnosed. <clears throat> and she had uh, heart surgery. And when they were doing the surgery, they realized that she was just weeks away from dying. She was weeks away from dying. So it was just in time to save her life. In the meantime, I had to postpone my career. Being a professional athlete and having an aneurysm is not a good combination at all. Um, doctors monitored my condition, and I had to wait six months. And I would do these tests every three months to see if the aneurysm was getting worse and worse. Um, and after a year, it grew slightly. And so it wasn't big enough that I needed surgery, because surgery, they have to stop your heart for quite a long period of time. Um, so they, that's risky, so they want to postpone that as much as possible. Um, but I had to stop all physical activity. So from being a, a, a professional athlete to sitting on a couch, not being able to do anything. Um, surfing was my life. Um, and I had a very difficult choice to make. Incredibly difficult choice. And as a Christian, with God in my life, in this community, in a relationship with a girl who loved the Lord and who was really pivotal um, in my faith, I wanted to choose surfing. I wanted to choose surfing. I wanted to continue to surf. But being completely honest with all of you guys, why? How did this happen? Why would I want to keep surfing, knowing that it will kill me, when I'm not, I cannot even value my life without it? There's an atheist by the name of David Foster Wallace. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. He's an intellectual heavyweight. I'm no longer with us today. Um, and I think he captures it best. And I'll read this quote to you. 
about what was going on. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You never feel you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to numb you of your own fear. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The only choice we get is what we worship. And this is him. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God is that pretty much everything else will eat you alive. Surfing was not just a career for me. That's where I tap meaning. It may be different for you. Maybe it's school. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your family. It was my identity and my self-worth. That's what surfing was for me. I centered my life on it. It was my God. It was my God. You can often find where you tap meaning if you ask yourself, if I just had X, whatever X is for you, then my life would matter. Then I'd know I'd really made it and I amounted to something. That's how you can find these things that we worship. The question isn't, do you need Christianity? We are all worshiping something. That is, we are built to worship. And that's what that David Foster Wallace is an atheist realized. That we are all built. And if God is true, and it is the God of the Bible, then he is supposed to be at the very center of our lives. He is supposed to be at the very center of our lives. And when we put something else there, we crush ourselves and we crush others. God was able to diagnose my physical heart to show me what was wrong with my spiritual heart. I still had a decision to make. I still had to decide on my own. And I don't know if you guys have had any sort of prayers like this, where you are on your hands and knees and you're crying, and you're in tears because you just don't have the strength to continue. There's something I have found about my experience with God, is that he allows me to come to my end, often. He doesn't force his answer on me. He allows me to pursue it to the end. I was on my hands and knees, literally at my end. And what surprised me was I was, I was in prayer. And here is a God who we're singing to. is a God of emotion. It's a God of, of irrationality, right? That God isn't rational. It's, 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 it's about your heart. And I got the most rational answer, I think, that I could have ever gotten. And it was two things. God was saying that 
You're given the choice your brother never had. You're given the choice your brother never had. And that was followed up with a question. What decision do you wish he would have made? What decision do you wish Tommy would have made? That happened to me in a prayer. Rational, logical wisdom that none of my friends have been able to speak into my life. That no one had told me and put it in that perspective. The things about making these decisions, which I did make, I did walk away from my career. You have to live with decisions like this. Right? You have to live with them. They don't, the next day it doesn't get easier. Being a Christian and making this decision, I think it made it where I was able to make it through. Barely, if I'm honest. It's not easy. Every day I felt like I was denying a part of myself. And I, wait, I had to wait to have surgery because my aneurysm still had not reached a point to where they wanted me to have it. And so I enrolled at Columbia University um, where I decided to major in religion. And my entire life I was led to believe that Christianity is the enemy of reason. It was just sort of this undertone that I always had. It's sort of an assumption that I had, to be honest. Um, and I came to find the opposite. That it's well documented that Christianity has played a pivotal role. Some authors claim the role in sustaining reason and logic after the collapse of the Roman Empire through the Dark and Middle Ages. That Christianity was responsible for that. Why? Because the God of the Bible is the eternal logos, the word. So reason... Rationality, using our minds, is critical for this God. This imbued reason, philosophy, logic, all of that, as from him. And so they sustained these things after the Roman Empire collapsed. In the book, God and Reason in the Middle Ages, um, Edward Grant, he's a distinguished uh, professor and historian at Indiana University, and he attributes the Bible coming up with the word scholastic, that it created scholastics, people who studied, studied logic and reason and scripture. And that led to modern universities today from the monastic movement. And he attributes, he says, and I'm quoting, it is an irony of medieval history that reason and rationality had for better or worse virtually everything to do with the state, everything to do with religion, theology, and the church, and relatively little to do with the state. This was true in the Middle Ages prior to the emergence of universities around 1200, but became even more pronounced after their formation. He goes on to claim that the scholastic had the intellectual capacity for establishing the foundations of the nation state, parliament, democracy, commerce, banking, higher education, and various literary forms. In another book, it's called The Book That Made Your World. It goes on to look at the biblical worldview. Why? Why was this so, why was this able to create democracy? Why was it able to lead to the nation state? What was it about this? And he goes on to claim that reasoning, university, um, hospitals, technology, that Christianity had led to humanitarian technology 
that Science Magazine, which is um, in an article written by Lynn White, who is a professor of history at Stanford and Princeton, he's developed strong evidence that biblical theology is credited with Western technology becoming a means of human emancipation. So things like the windmill and all those things, they created that so that humans wouldn't have to do this work because they, humans were meant to use their mind and to be able to choose between what work they would do. Hospitals also link back to Christianity. Music. What we did before this also link back to Christianity. Science, all of that is well documented. The biblical worldview was influential and critical to creating Western civilization as we know it. And figures, one of the biggest figures of that entire thing was an African bishop by the name of Augustine. His influence on reason and logic and music carries and is still with us today. It's incredible. And so for me, I was just blown away that this was speaking to the misconceptions that I held about Christianity. And that is a part of what I believe Alpha will bring for you. That you'll be able to realize and tap into these things. Tap into this history. Use your mind. God created sunsets and created beauty and he created books and words and we're supposed to see and do both at the same time. He created all of it. And a part of the biblical worldview, which was so critical, was that this is a world of order and not chaos. It claims that God is a rational creator, the eternal logos, who created a universe that operates according to rational principles, who created humanity in his image as rational creatures, that we are rational creatures that have the ability of comprehension to make sense of the world around us, and the world around us is able to be comprehended. That's why the biblical worldview contrasts to Buddhism, say, where you're supposed to still the mind and empty the mind. Christianity is the opposite. It's saying, use your mind. Use your mind. And so as I was at Columbia and continued to study, I found that even my sense of justice, right? Justice, that things that happened beyond my brother's death, beyond just the human suffering that we see in this world. Genocide. All these horrible things that secular justice only gets us so far. It only gets us so far. Right? You can call people to account for the things that are the unseen things. But in the end, what God promises us in comparison to secular justice is that in the end, everything will be redeemed. In the end, every person will hold, be held accountable. That is true justice. That is the world that we all want. That in the end, everyone will be held accountable. And that means us as well. That means for me, it's me. And I know I've done bad things in my life. And so the only way for me to demand true justice is to also condemn myself. 
And the only way we get around that is by a king who uses his power to empty himself to come here on earth and become flesh. The name of this church. And so as I was going through Columbia and as I was seeing these gaps, learning about Christianity, seeing the gaps between secular justice and what the Bible promised, um, I continued to continue in my faith. And then the really unfortunate thing about being diagnosed with something like this is that you never know when it's going to come around. And so in the middle of my education, I, was, uh, I went to my checkup and they said, you're going to have to have surgery. And so all of this became really real for me. Um, the moment that the surgery entails that they stop my heart for an hour and a half, they, poc- they pack uh, my body uh, in ice chips to a state of hypothermia. And they go in, they replace about eight inches of my ascending aorta. So I had to say goodbye to my mom, my dad, my loved ones. Um, the moment in life where, you know, I, I wasn't sure, it wasn't promised I was going to see them again. Um, and they rolled me in to surgery. And the really, really awkward thing is that because I was healthy, they could only get me so far. There was this lip like this. So they wheeled me all the way to the room, and they're like, you're healthy. <laughs> I'm like, and? Like, could you walk from, like, here to that wall? <laughs> and lay on that table that 12 people are standing around waiting to cut you open. I'm just like, wow. <laughs> um, and I did. Um, it was, yeah, I went down, I lay down, and, and lay down on the table, and they asked me one question, and that was, that was it. And woke up in ICU 12 hours later. Um, on life support, you breathing tube down your throat. Um, kind of hear voices, you know. And that's when finding a God who fights for you and appreciates your life when you didn't appreciate it becomes really real. And you add on top of that all the evidence, the influence of the biblical worldview in our world today I think it's enough. I think it's enough. And I think that if we look at the world around us, we see a rational design. We see that. And you can take the, the, the agent out of that and just look at the mechanism. You can do that. Or you can look at it with the agent and the mechanism. As far as intellectual satisfaction, The second one makes much more sense to me. That there is a rational design behind this universe. When you look at the evidence of how finely tuned things have to be for this to exist. I laid in a hospital bed with 35 machines around me doing what my body's doing right now. With six people coming in all the time. Just so each of our bodies are doing it right now on their own. Now you can say, yeah, that, that happened by chance, and you can hold that position. You can. And you, we welcome those questions, and we welcome that position. But for me, and for my experience of this world, and my own intellectual curiosity, I found it not compelling. Do you know 
how you start a heart back up after you stop it, in this case, for my surgery? Anyone have any idea how you do it? Let's hear it. Anyone have any, any idea how you start a heart back up? What's that? No. No. I thought that too. Yeah. You know how you start it? You flick it. <laughs> you flick it. Your heart was meant to beat. Your heart was meant to beat. All it takes is a flick. And so, thank you guys so much for listening to my story. I hope I've given you enough questions to continue on, to sign up for Alpha, to continue to pursue these questions. Um, and I thank you guys so much for this opportunity to come here and speak and talk about Jesus. Thank you.